Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week, I speak with citizen changemakers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guest today is Nicole Hammer. She's a political historian specializing in media, conservatism, and the far right, an associate research scholar with the Obama Presidency Oral History Project, and co-host of the Past Present Podcast. She's also the author of Messengers of the Right, Conservative Media, and the Transformation of American Politics. This episode examines the birth of conservative media activism and the groundwork it laid for the behemoth that we know today. A lot of times when people think about media, they think of it just as sort of ephemera, right? Like what you hear on the air is the totality of what that media is. But behind the scenes, the people who were on these programs, who were publishing conservative books, they were activists. They were were grassroots activists who were heading up presidential campaigns, who were putting together organizations, who were doing the kinds of things that we see as traditional political activism. They just saw media as a really important part of that activism. We talk about the roots of the conservative movement and its impact on today's vernacular on the media overall, the fundamental difference in how conservatives understand truth and the conflict of power over facts. Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Mila. I loved your book, and uh, I thought maybe the best way to get into it is to ask you, why did you write this book? I had been interested in contemporary conservative media for some time. It was something that I used to listen to with my dad. We would listen to talk radio together, and it got me really, really intrigued by the way that conservative media was shaping politics in the 2000s. And then I discovered that the radio that I was listening to actually had a prehistory that I knew nothing about. I discovered that in 1964, the magazine The Nation was writing about what they called the hate clubs of the air. And it was all about this radical right-wing radio. And for me, I had no idea that there was anything like this or anything so prominent that it'd be covered in the national media. And that really sent me down the path of digging into this world that I had just never known existed. And when I did... I found out that it wasn't just a story about conservative media. It was about the birth of the conservative movement, that it was a movement that was being built by people who were going into radio or starting magazines. That was fascinating because I think it tells us something about why media are so important to the conservative movement and why, in a lot of ways, the conservative movement has a much more robust and powerful media apparatus than on the left. You actually call those pioneers media activists. Can you explain what a media activist is the way that you understand it? Sure. I love this term, too, because I think that it allows us to see the political organization that's happening behind the scenes. A lot of times when people think about media, they think of it just as a uh, sort of ephemera, right? Like what you hear on the air is the totality of what that media is. But behind the scenes, the people who were on these programs, who were publishing conservative books, they were 
activists. There were were grassroots activists who were heading up presidential campaigns, who were putting together organizations, who were doing the kinds of things that we see as traditional political activism. They just saw media as a really important part of that activism. And I think that's really important because that blending of political media and very traditional types of organizational politics, like presidential campaigns, we don't necessarily think of those two things together. But for more than 50 years, they have been a central part of not just the conservative movement, but increasingly of the Republican Party. So what really struck me when I read all that is that they did, however, have an emphasis on having their own media outlets. And in fact, that was a really key part of building their political power. They espouse this belief that political change must come from ideas through ideological media sources. So what does that mean really in practice? Yeah, the idea that you would have a separate media institutions was in a certain sense about control. They understood their media outlets as political institutions, and they wanted to have control of them. They didn't want someone else to come in and tell them what to cover or that they needed to cover both sides of an issue or that they needed to have Democrats on to balance out the Republicans. They were convinced that what they would come to call mainstream media had a liberal bias and that conservative viewpoints would not get a fair hearing. This movement goes back to the America First Committee before World War II. And if you were an American who opposed intervention in World War II in, say, early 1941, neither of the two major parties agreed with you. You probably weren't going to get to be a columnist in The New York Times. You probably weren't going to be able to write for Henry Luce's magazines because they were staunchly interventionist. And so that experience of feeling that they had been blacked out of the major parties and the major media outlets was a really formative experience. It it made them believe that in order to really get their political message and their ideas out there, they were going to have to control their institutions going forward. That whole history was really fascinating that, in fact, the people who ended up building this conservative movement were simply anti-joining the war and that America First was primarily about conserving an American idealism about the American way of life. Can you talk a little bit more about how America First shaped those ideas in terms of what it really means to be conservative in those days? So this is unusual because the ideas would change after the early Cold War. But it does come out of a sense of conservative American nationalism, what you might call America first, that idea that getting involved in international wars and international institutions was something that was sort of taking the lifeblood away from Americans as a people and as a country. And in the 1920s, This was a majoritarian view in a lot of ways. We often think of it the 1920s as isolationist. And there was, to a certain extent, an agreement that the U.S. needed to focus on itself and spend a little bit less time involved in, say, European wars. That is going to change by the late 1930s. But you can imagine this experience of having had this 
kind of a consensus viewpoint in the U.S. And then suddenly nobody agrees with you anymore and you're not represented in the two major parties and you're not represented in the headlines of the day. And that, I think, was a pretty disturbing experience for a lot of what would become conservatives. America First, I should note, was a pretty broad ideological alliance. It had Democrats and Republicans and conservatives and socialists and members of the German Bund. It gets very much associated with a kind of racist nationalism, which is rooted in this conservative center of the America First Committee in Chicago, is going to, after the war, be the place where modern conservatism emerges again. That return to a kind of insular nationalism well up until the mid-1950s or so is a really important idea in American conservatism that only gets abandoned when the fight against communism sort of sparks this desire to get more involved in world affairs in order to win the Cold War. So actually, it becomes really this uh, force in anti-communism. When we look at the Republican Party today, it seems completely inconceivable that these conservatives were staunch anti-communists, were huge backers of McCarthy. And in fact, they were betrayed by Khrushchev's visit to the United States and felt completely disillusioned by Eisenhower's presidency. I have this question about... What do you think Russia or Buckley would say with the current turn of events and with Trump's presidency being aided by the Russians? It's so interesting because we're in such a different political context. I mean, if you you know went back in time and you told Bill Rusher, who is the publisher of the National Review, or Bill Buckley, who was its founder, that in 2016, the Republican Party and the Russian government are going to be on the same page in who should win the 2016 election, both working toward that same goal and that the Republican Party would do nothing really about Russian interference in an American election. He would be, I think fair to say, pretty shocked and pretty horrified. For the conservatives in my book, what ends up ultimately shaping their politics and their worldview in many ways is the Cold War. And by the 1990s, that Cold War is over and it leaves conservatives a little adrift because that had been the organizing principle of their movement. And that's exactly the moment when you see Pat Buchanan emerge and begin to espouse the type of politics that Donald Trump would embrace in 2016. One of the hallmarks, I think, of that conservatism and the conservatism that we see today is that they believe that ideology trumps essentially the facts on the ground. In what way is the conservatism of that time and the media activism of that time similar to today's? In the 1950s and 1960s, as conservatives are building these media outlets, they're also building a new set of ideas about how to understand the world. And what they're telling their listeners is, you know, the newspapers and television news and other radio news are telling you that they're objective. That's not true. They're actually biased toward liberalism. In fact, everyone's biased. And given that, shouldn't you be listening to the voices that are biased 
towards the true position. And the true position here wasn't necessarily about facts. It was about beliefs. One of the ideas was believe us not only because we're right, like we're factually right, but because we're right wing. We hold the true political position. The thing that you should be paying attention to is what are the politics of the person who's telling you this? And the way you're going to know whether something is trustworthy and therefore true is if you've figured out their politics and figured out that they're a conservative. That's very, very different from the idea of objectivity. It's really in the 1990s and the 2000s as the conservative media ecosystem becomes much, much, much bigger and conservatives become a much bigger part of the Republican Party base that this assumption that you need to trust people who are on your side, even over the facts, becomes such a powerful political force in the United States. It's the same idea that you were hearing from conservatives in the 50s and 60s. But in the 50s and 60s, they just didn't have that much power. They weren't able to build a media bubble so big that it could encompass enough Americans to have an impact on the epistemological grounds of the conversation. That really changes in the late 1980s, the 1990s. And it has, as we see today, really profound effects on American politics. Let's go a little bit into that history of how that first generation of conservative media activists is different than today in terms of how hard a time they actually had. And in some ways, it makes a lot of sense that in those days, they insisted to have their own media outlets because that was going to be the only place where they were going to be heard because nobody else would give them a platform. What would you say about that time in terms of the foundation that it eventually built for what we have today. Yeah, the important thing to remember or to know about conservatives in the 1950s and into the 1960s is that even though these media activists had access to a lot of traditional sources of power, they were politically connected. Many of them were wealthy. They were often white men. So they had a lot of social cachet in that sense. They were kind of on the fringes of politics. What that meant was they were outsiders. And worse than that, they were outsiders who really believed they should be insiders. They had it all. And yet they didn't control one of the two major parties. So that kind of outsider position leads them to create these alternate institutions that they would have control over that message. And I think that that is something that the Democrats didn't have, that liberals didn't have. They felt like they had a voice in the two major parties. They felt like they had representation in the media. And so they weren't driven to develop these competing institutions. And that's part of the imbalance that you see in our politics today between the different ideological media landscapes. Well, to circle back to the fairness doctrine and what you said just now, I feel like this idea that they're on the fringes and that they're on the outside continues to pervade their vernacular, even though they are occupying the White House and Fox News is really the dominant purveyor of information. And yet they still accuse the media at large of having a liberal bias, which actually I don't think is fair or true. Why do you think that is so effective to continue to accuse the media of being liberal? It's a really good question because, first of all, I think that oppositional identity that you point to, because it's so central to 
the conservative identity that's forged into the 1950s and 1960s, it has real staying power. It's actually kind of amazing how politically effective it is. It is sort of assumed, even by liberals sometimes, that conservatives don't have a home in mainstream media, that they don't have a home in American universities. And so finding these institutions where conservatives feel victimized, that then is really, really effective politically to sort of continue to nurture that sense of victimization, even if those other institutions don't actually have that much power or aren't actually as liberal as conservatives present them. And I agree with you that the idea that a university is a liberal institution or that journalism is a liberal institution. I mean, they might have a commitment to those sort of soft liberal ideas, but they're not like the arm of the Democratic Party in any way, shape or form. But those ideas were really important because that then allowed the right to build their counter-institutions or the counter-establishment that did all of those things that they accused mainstream media of doing because they made the argument that, say, the New York Times was an arm of the Democratic Party. They developed something like Fox News that actually would become an arm of the Republican Party. So it sort of gave them a justification for creating what were at the time very unusual institutions in the United States. One of the things that they pointed to as a sign of their persecution or their victimization was this thing called the Fairness Doctrine, a regulatory rule that said that radio stations and then television stations, because they were licensed by the government, that privilege came with a set of responsibilities. And one of those obligations was to cover controversial issues and to do so in a way that gave voice to all the different sides of that issue. Conservatives saw the Fairness Doctrine as a form of censorship. That's not really how the Fairness Doctrine worked. I mean, one of the flaws of the Fairness Doctrine was that it didn't really have any teeth in a way, but it was oftentimes much more of a bogeyman. The thing that was a big stopper for a lot of these programs were that they weren't very good. This first generation was a bunch of activists who were trying to figure out how to use media as opposed to entertainers who already understood well how to use a medium effectively and then use that talent toward politics, which is something you would see with like Rush Limbaugh and Fox News later on. The first generation of conservative media activists were primarily very well-educated people and really were all about the ideas, whereas Rush Limbaugh and Glenn Beck and Sean Hannity, they were really people who came from entertainment, who then spread the conservative message in a much more effective, visceral way. It was much more emotional as opposed to cerebral. But it's getting a little bit of a bad rap, finally, from people within the conservative movement, like George W. Bush speechwriter David Frum, that the current sphere is a full-blown alternative media ecosystem untethered from reality. Now, having studied the origins of conservative media activism, how can we find a way to reality and truth, something that actually does depict what's really happening and can inform the public properly? So it's a challenge for conservatives right now, for those who feel that it has become too unmoored, as you were saying. You know, the activists in the 50s and 60s, I don't think they could have ever imagined conservative media being as powerful and as 
I almost want to say all-consuming as it would become. I mean, Clarence Mannion, when he's doing his radio show, it's 15 minutes one time a week. He has a television show for a little while. It's 30 minutes one time a week. That is very, very different from the wall-to-wall talk radio that we have now, the conservative media on the internet, which allows the creation of exactly that, this sort of cohesive media ecosphere, that detachment from reality. But the seeds of that were absolutely planted back in the 50s and 60s because these alternative institutions, they were about creating a different set of authorities for people to trust. And, you know, in the 1950s and 60s, they couldn't do that in a way that cut people off from reality. But the idea was there that you should only listen to and you should only trust conservative sources or if you listen to other sources, that you should understand them through that lens of authority. You should distrust them automatically or at least go in with some real suspicion. Um, That idea ends up becoming this really powerful and I think ultimately a rightly criticized part of what would become conservatism. And I think the reason why there are Republicans who are really nervous about that is because there's only so long that you can operate in a system that doesn't acknowledge reality. This was often talked about in the Obama years as waiting for the fever to break, that eventually this unreality could only exist for so long before the political chickens came home to roost. The question you've asked about what to do to fix it, I don't know how fixable it is. I think that There are probably worthwhile efforts to contain it. You've seen increasingly these sort of alternatives, like the dispatch and the bulwark on the right, which are attempting to be more sort of reality-based conservative media. The problem is they're still existing within the same framework of distrust of liberal media bias, of the kinds of assumptions, the need for alternative institutions that have defined conservative media for you know, 60 plus years now, it's not clear that they can escape the fate that conservative media of an earlier era ultimately fell to. If you're not a conservative and you're not deeply steeped in this environment, what would you say to people about their ideology and their movement that we are misunderstanding? We are not having even a regular dialogue with them. And I think we really should about politics, democracy, the state of the American economy, or even about the pandemic. And I think it may be in part because we're speaking different languages, but also because we fundamentally misunderstand. What would you say we need to really understand? Yeah, so I would say that it's not just that we're speaking fundamentally different languages, we're speaking across an epistemological divide, um, which is just to say that our ways of understanding what is true and what is not true are different. It, I think, is often more useful to think of what's happening in conservative media as making arguments based on faith claims. These are claims of authority and knowledge based on faith rather than necessarily on observable facts and events. And I think that's an important reframing because it calls attention to the different types of appeals that need to be made. There's a real tendency for people outside of conservative media to focus on debunking, flooding 
the field with facts. And that should be enough to win the argument. And it wasn't because that wasn't the terrain on which the argument was being built. And so understanding both what the claims are, who the authorities are within the conservative ecosystem, and thinking about, too, what is the work that conservative media outlets are doing to help the right continue to hold power, and thinking about ways that you can intercept and make it ineffective and holding power. And I I don't actually have the answers to this. I think that it's going to take some really genuine political creativity in order to figure that out. But in the case of something like Mitch McConnell and Merrick Garland, explaining that there was no pre-existing sort of ban about not seating a Supreme Court justice in the last year of a presidency it, it didn't work, right? Facts were facts, but they were not effective because they were getting in between Mitch McConnell and what he wanted, which was that Supreme Court seat. Reframing his tactics is not about claims about the truth of what happened in the past, but about almost like propaganda or political strategies and tactics to keeping a hold on power was, I think, from the jump, the way that that should have been treated. There was real muddying of the water that happened by treating it as a conflict of different facts as opposed to a conflict over power. Yeah, well put. So let's say if you were a journalist and you had to write a headline about McConnell and Garland, and this is basically how could we reframe it for somebody that we're talking to, how would you frame the struggle over power in a headline? I think if you wrote the headline, you could say an unprecedented power grab. Mitch McConnell refuses to hold vote on Supreme Court nominee. That power grab, foregrounding that is the most important thing. What is the source of your passion? You know, I loved having political debates with my dad especially when I was in my 20s and had left home for college and then graduate school. It was a real way of bonding for the two of us. There were arguments that we had across a political divide. He was very conservative. I was more liberal. And yet we were able to have these debates or discussions about politics that came from a place of mutual respect and love and understanding and I really wanted to understand more about his politics, about how he developed them, about why he loved listening to Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity, why he liked Fox News so much. And so it was really about trying to understand my dad that I got interested in this set of projects. And nowadays, I think also a bit of wistfulness that those kinds of conversations that start from those same points of mutual respect and understanding and listening and disagreeing all at the same time seem more and more difficult to have. Indeed, this is true. Last question. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? This is a great question because so many of my interviews these days end with the person saying that that was a pessimistic conversation. And there are certainly lots to be pessimistic about. But the thing that really, really inspires me and makes me hopeful for the future is the level of 
political activism that we've seen in the U.S. in the last five years. I mean, I think that we have been in an age of really genuine, passionate engagement with politics since the late 2000s. But there is something about the surge in political activism, seeing people take their frustration and their sorrow and their fear and turning it into solidarity and support and running for public office. I mean, the unprecedented number of women and people of color and trans people that we have seen running for office at a moment when they were especially fearful of what the future held. And to have them run really engaged, you know, really listening to the people that they would ultimately come to represent. It's incredibly inspiring and something that I will say on election night 2016, I don't think that I could have ever imagined happening. It's a really beautiful thing to see. And I think it is something that is laying the groundwork for a whole generation of activism and engaged politics that I'm looking forward to seeing how it unfolds. Me too. Thank you so much for being on Future Hindsight. Thank you so much for having me. Understanding the deep history of conservative media activism explains the tenor and shape of conservative messaging today. Unfortunately, understanding how we got here doesn't help us find a way to bridge the epistemic divide in how conservatives understand and perceive truth and how everyone else does. Like Nikki, I'm hopeful about the engaged activism that we've seen over the past five years, and especially what we've seen over the last few weeks with protests about systemic police brutality and Black Lives Matter. These protests are working to move the needle on police reform and on race in America. At the same time, just a few days ago, a conservative acquaintance dismissed the rise in COVID deaths as fake news and asserted the logical fallacy that the increasing number of cases is a result of increased testing. Well, I believe that our way forward must involve tenacious repetition of the truth, and most importantly, of the idea that we are locked in a power struggle over who owns reality, and not simply arguing about the facts. Stand up for truth. It matters. Next week, our guest is Alexandra Minna Stern. She's professor of history, American culture, and women's and gender studies, as well as associate dean for the humanities at the University of Michigan. She also directs the Sterilization and Social Justice Lab. Her latest book is Proud Boys and the White Ethnostate, How the Alt-Right is Warping the American Imagination. One of the ways to think about the Proud Boys is really as a gateway to the far right. And in fact, the Southern Poverty Law Center did a study where they looked at what were the organizations or the people, the social media kind of celebrities that were often the first stop in the journey of someone who was being red-pilled and learning that modernity and modern liberalism with all of its diversity speak and claims of egalitarianism and feminism were all wrong and had misshaped American society and needed to be undone and replaced with something that was more of a natural order. We talk about red-pilling, the meaning of culture as being pre-politics, and the impact of the rise of white nationalism on American society. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. 
The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Zumbu. Additional production by Brooke Sayan. Listen to us online at futurehindsight.com or your favorite streaming service. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.